Anna Mae Wong was a movie superstar, international fashion icon, and anti-racist advocate in the golden age of Hollywood. So why don't more people know about her? Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and on this episode, I'll be discussing Anna Mae Wong, Chinese-American celebrity and international movie star. Anna Mae Wong was born as Wong Yutsong in Los Angeles, was in Hollywood before the age of 20, and left Hollywood for international collaborations before the age of 30. Anna Mae Wong was the name she chose for herself as she pursued dreams of acting stardom. Her story is, in many ways, illustrative of attitudes towards immigration, mobility, and celebrity culture in the early 20th century. As a subject for a footnoting history episode, Anna Mae Wong is something of an unusual case. In her own day, she was an internationally famous actress and fashion icon, despite the racism and exclusion she faced in Hollywood. But today, she's much better known by scholars of film and feminism than she is by the general public. More than once, she's been featured in articles and documentary specials about unsung, forgotten, or otherwise marginalized trailblazers. But her posthumous fame has never seemed to quite break through into the mainstream. And in some ways, this seems to echo the ways in which she remained pigeonholed as a quote-unquote minor star in Hollywood during her career. This marginalization of her reputation may be, excitingly, about change, as Gemma Chan is slated to star in a biopic about her. But for now, I still have the excuse to talk about the remarkable Anna Mae Wong as something of a footnote to Hollywood history. She was resilient, intelligent, and resourceful, as well as a talented actress. And her life and career illustrate both the tensions of Asian American identity, particularly in the early 20th century, and many of the rapid changes in the first few decades of the film industry. Anna Mae Wong grew up in a bustling immigrant neighborhood in Los Angeles, a few streets removed from the city's Chinatown. Her grandparents had immigrated to California in the Gold Rush generation, before the infamous Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Anna Mae herself was born in 1905 into a thriving city and a deeply racist society. In Los Angeles Chinatown, 20% of households ran laundries, and Anna Mae's extended family was responsible for about a third of that business. Anna Mae, however, dreamed of a different future for herself. She often told the story of how she first discovered the enthrallments of film, spending a tip from a laundry delivery to go to the cinema. And from this first experience onwards, she was hooked, delighting in the perils of Pauline and other early serials. By the time she was in her early teens, she was acting in extra roles in films herself. Her first role was in a now classic 1919 film about the Boxing Rebellion, The Red Lantern. Significantly, it was James Wang, a first-generation Chinese immigrant and Hollywood casting agent, who approached her about taking on a role as an extra in the film, a sprawling and melodramatic epic based on a popular novel. And from there, Anna Mae embarked upon a series of minor roles, mostly films set in assorted Chinatowns featuring gangsters, racial stereotypes, and ill-fated interracial romance. Her breakout role was in The Toll of the Sea, when she was still only 17. The plot is essentially that of Madame Butterfly, which had been a popular play and opera set in Japan. Relocating it to China is a classic example of Orientalism, treating Asian cultures as interchangeable and fundamentally similar. But the basic plot does work because it's one of imperialism and racism in which an American asshole seduces and betrays a young Asian woman. 
If you think this sounds depressing, you're not wrong. But I'm going to take a little time to unpack it because of the ways in which it illustrates the kind of roles Wong was often given and what she did with them. In The Toll of the Sea, Wong's character, Lotus Flower, is linked visually and thematically with flowers, stereotyped as, similarly, both beautiful and fragile. This is particularly notable in an intercut scene where she contemplates a photo of her shipwrecked sweetheart, while his American friends successfully persuade him that it would be entirely inappropriate for him to take Lotus Flower home with him when he returns to the States. The intertitles represent Wong's character as speaking stereotypically broken English at first, and then stilted but formal English. When gossipy middle-aged women speak Chinese to her, the titles show Chinese characters that dissolve into English in a stereotyped font. The women warn her against the careless ways of American men, and their pattern of seducing and abandoning the women of the Chinese coast. But Lotus Flower predictably ignores them, hurling up-to-date English slang after them as she calls them cats. Despite Anime Wong's spirited performance, Lotus Flower is also represented in the film as a non-modern colonial subject. She dresses in out-of-date European clothes, not understanding either Western mores or modernity, and surrenders her child to her lover's white American wife, asking to be remembered only as his Chinese nurse. This is perhaps the earliest instance of Anime Wong's famous and heartrending ability to cry on film. The film ends with her tragic suicide and the reinforcement of even the insistence on cultural and racial divides. Wong, however, gives a touching and dignified performance despite the ways in which the narrative infantilizes her character. Interestingly, too, she appears to have added idiomatic Chinese lines for Lotus Flower to include in a letter to her lover, as noted by Graham Russell Gao Hodges. Lotus Flower was Anime Wong's breakthrough role, as mentioned before. The New York Times said that she should be seen again on the screen, and also praised her as naturally Chinese, whatever that means. This is typical of the favorable but racist reviews which praised her variously as a dainty, almond-eyed Cinderella of the screen, or simply China doll. This orientalism would follow Wong throughout her career, and the intersection of attitudes towards gender and race would affect her particularly as an Asian-American woman. Anime Wong had to deal with sexist prejudices towards actresses on the one hand, and racist exclusion on the other. As a contrast, behind the camera in the same period, James Wong Howe was making an extraordinary career as a Chinese-American cinematographer. And I promise you, even if you don't think you know James Wong Howe's name, you know his work on films like The Thin Man, Yankee Doodle Dandy, A Farewell to Arms, and Shanghai Express, in which Anime Wong also starred. I'll turn to that film later on. Wong was self-conscious about wanting to bring better Chinese representation to the screen, in an era when casting white actors in Asian roles was common, alongside widespread de facto residential segregation. In many ways, Anime Wong dealt with anti-Asian racism of a kind similar to that that we still see today. But she also had to navigate Hollywood's stardom in a time when the film industry was very nervous about not only racially accurate casting, but things like portraying interracial romance in a time of anti-miscegenation laws. Both she and Japanese star Sesue Hayakawa found themselves often cast in stories of ill-fated love across racial boundaries. Pathetic, dying anime quipped seemed to be the best thing I did. Her prolific film career got another boost when Douglas Fairbanks Sr. 
arguably the Hollywood movie star of the 1920s, handpicked her for a role in the epic and orientalist fantasy swashbuckler The Thief of Baghdad, which he produced and starred in. Fairbanks is an impudent thief on the streets of Baghdad, indubitably influencing Disney's later riff on this plot, and Anna Mae Wong, well, she plays an enslaved Mongol woman whose character, although important, is unnamed. Still, in what would become a recurring feature of her roles, she did her best to give a three-dimensional performance with racist source material, and she looked both sexy and glamorous, performing in costumes that were at the cutting edge of what could be revealed in pre-code Hollywood. For the next few years, she continued to take a wide range of roles, from a baroness to a notch dancer, from Tiger Lily in Peter Pan to a, quote, flower of the Orient in Old San Francisco. And the reviews kept being racist, even when they raved about her. She was little Anna Mae Wong, for instance, in a review of The Thief of Baghdad. And she was an inch taller than Fairbanks, the superstar. But The Thief of Baghdad had brought her to the attention of Richard Eichberg, who offered her a five-picture deal in Berlin. So Anna Mae Wong and her sister Lulu were off to Berlin, in 1928 arguably the cosmopolitan capital of interwar culture. Hollywood, in short, wasn't good enough to keep her. The Berlin years brought new opportunities for anime, and a consolidation of her image as an international, cosmopolitan flapper. Shirley Jennifer Lim has argued that Wong throughout her career was very consciously shaping and reshaping her image. And in Europe, she was allowed to play a wider range of roles, while her identity as a Chinese-American actress made her doubly exotic. It may seem as though I'm overstating this, but such attitudes emerge with startling explicitness in interviews and newspaper articles, and even in an essay by the great philosopher Walter Benjamin. Benjamin was charmed and fascinated by her as the toast of cosmopolitan Berlin after her performance in the 1928 Babelsberg film Schmutziges Geld, where her weeping on screen as the Malaysian dancing girl song was much praised. Also in 1928, Wong was photographed by Alfred Eisenstedt between two other female celebrities whose paths would later diverge, Marlene Dietrich and Leni Riefenstahl. It's been suggested that Wong was positioned in the center because, at the time, as an international film star, she was by far the most famous of the three. Dietrich was, at this time, a cabaret singer. Her breakout role in Der Blaue Engel and her own career as an international film star were some years in the future as were Riefenstahl's infamous Nazi propaganda films. After Berlin, Anna Mae Wong did stints in Paris and London. On the London stage, she acted in The Circle of Chalk, playing a selfless mother in a morality play set in pre-modern China, and at least loosely based on Li Tianfu's Yuan Dynasty play. She enjoyed a great success in it, and was billed over her co-star, The Virtuous Prince, a young Laurence Olivier in rose-colored silk. As Olivier's casting indicates, the pattern of casting white actors alongside Asian actors in Asian roles continued. Also in London, Wong took a starring role in the stylish silent film Piccadilly, under the pioneering director E.A. Dupont. This role, as a parlourmaid turned nightclub star, Shosho, brought her increased international acclaim, and also controversy. The initial version of the film included an interracial kiss between Wong and her co-star, which was censored. But censorship, of course, did not end discussion of the kiss, which made for juicy publicity. Wong's own memorable response made to a journalist was, I see no reason why Chinese and English people should not kiss on the screen, even though I prefer not to. 
This I prefer not to, alongside Wong's explicit skepticism about and distaste for the patriarchal marriage model that was the norm in the early 20th century US, has led to much speculation about her sexuality. But her deliberate reserve means that the speculation must remain just that. Her close friendship with Marlene Dietrich notwithstanding. Before leaving Europe, Anime Wong made several more films. In an early Hitchcock project, she plays as herself in a vaudeville sketch based on Taming of the Shrew. And as the Kate figure, she gets to yell at men in Cantonese while hurling cream pies at them. Magnificent. In Pavement Butterfly, she plays a Chinese dancer on the French Riviera, who evades crime, violence, and unwanted love, eventually declaring that she belongs neither to the rich man who would have her as his mistress, or the artist who would have her as his muse. She also filmed The Flame of Love in three different versions, playing the cabaret dancer Hai Tang, speaking English, French, and German. This illustrates not only the scope of the international film industry at the dawn of the talkie era, but also the complexity of the roles that Wong had wanted and gotten. But there were still limits. You may have noticed that, over and over again, she was cast in roles as entertainers, very often as dancers, set apart from the other characters both by her race and her social position, and with her physicality and sexuality inevitably centered. Nevertheless, she was, incontrovertibly, an international film star of the highest order, just one decade after taking her first role as an extra. Armed with fabulous outfits and a new level of international fame, Anna Mae Wong was ready to make her return to Hollywood. Her first starring role back on the US side of the Atlantic was one in which she gave a remarkable performance, but arguably more despite the material than because of it. Daughter of the Dragon, in which she starred opposite Sesue Hayakawa, was based on one of the infamous Fu Manchu stories. I say infamous because they are now, deservedly, a byword for racist caricature. They were, in their day, enormously popular pulp fiction. Melodrama about Fu Manchu, a Chinese crime boss. Think Professor Moriarty, but racist. Anime Wong's character is introduced as Princess Ling Moi, celebrated oriental dancer. I know, again. She is also the daughter of the infamous Fu Manchu, who is now hunted by the Chinese detective A Qi, played by Hayakawa, and an initially skeptical Scotland Yard. Inspired by love for her father, Ling Moi performs both Confucian piety and gender transgressive vengeance. Fu Manchu refers to her as man-daughter, and she swears to avenge his blood on the young Englishman who is the latest scion of the hated Petri family. Young Petri falls understandably in love with her, but she demurs. This satisfied Hollywood's rules about not depicting interracial romance, though it did not satisfy the young Englishman. In a climactic scene, Ling Moi seduces and misleads A Qi by singing to him in Chinese. Unsurprisingly, and once again, she dies at the end. Subtle is obviously the last thing that this film is that Anime Wong manages to deliver a thoughtful and credible performance of an emotionally complex woman, despite the script, is a tribute to her ability. But she wasn't happy. In an interview with the LA Times, she asked, Why is it that the screen Chinese is nearly always the villain of the piece? And so cruel a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass. Why indeed? Wong's next film, for Josef von Sternberg, both played with and subverted this trope to enormously satisfying effect. I promise not to go on too long about Shanghai Express, despite my love for this movie and its stars. Wong stars opposite Marlene Dietrich. During production, they hung out in Dietrich's dressing room and listened to records. In the film, they form an alliance against the stupidity of men. 
and also against a general in northern China during the Civil War. This film is also notable for the fact that Anna Mae Wong's character gets a real name, Hui Fei, and Marlene Dietrich is the woman of all too certain morals with an exotic moniker, Shanghai Lily. And this playing around with assumed and performative identities is also one of the themes of the film. The ways in which China is treated as a backdrop are, it is true, not free of caricature. There's the villainous and brutal general, for one thing. And for another, Cantonese and Mandarin are treated as interchangeable and indistinguishable in the background to train station scenes. Oops. Wong gets to play the heroine, but this means aligning herself with the Europeans against the loathed general. It's complicated. But it's still one of Wong's better vehicles. She is really excellent in it. Other examples of Wong's early 30s filmography include such titles as Limehouse Blues and Daughter of Shanghai, which give you a sense of how much stereotypes hadn't changed in the decade since she had first entered movies. As a Sherlock Holmes nerd, I'm obliged to mention that Wong also played a mysterious widow in a 1933 film called A Study in Scarlet. The plot has absolutely nothing to do with the plot of the novel, and it's sadly not atypical of the quality of films that inspired Anime Wong to take another break from Hollywood in 1936. This time, she went to China, where she visited the village where her grandparents came from and filmed her own documentary about her experiences. This year-long visit was viewed with some ambivalence. To culturally conservative China, Anime Wong as Hollywood actress was slightly suspect but as Chinese celebrity, a welcome visitor. For Wong herself, this appears to have been an extremely positive experience. She toured city and countryside, signed guest books, bought clothes, and got the chance, in her own words, to be Liu Tsong rather than Anna Mei. When she did, again, return to Hollywood, it was to substantial leading roles. She was still only in her early 30s, and at this point in her career, she combined her always magnetic screen presence with the poise and authority of almost two decades of professional experience. In Dangerous to Know, she is a power broker and gangster's mistress, suavely welcoming guests to the kind of smoky party where dubious deals are done. In King of Chinatown, she is an accomplished surgeon, daughter of a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. As usual, she's giving an A-grade performance in a B-film. But it's a pretty good B-film, and it dramatizes multiple options for Chinese-American identity and experience in a way that would have been all but unthinkable 20 years earlier. It also gives Anime Wong the line, I don't trust people who quote Shakespeare so glibly, which is magnificent. Still, at one point during research for this episode, I found myself wondering if I could tally the movies where Wong's characters get actual names versus those where she's known only by an epithet. In Island of Lost Men, she plays China Lily, chanteuse turned spy. And despite the limitations of the script, she does a lot of work with pacing, delivery, intonation, and nonverbals. As a remarkably nuanced performance in a melodramatic setting, it's typical of much of her work. Her love interest, Chang Tai, is played by Mexican-American actor Anthony Quinn, illustrating Anime Wong's exasperated claim that to Hollywood casting agents, non-white roles were interchangeable if non-white actors got cast at all. One of her strongest late career performances is in the wartime film Lady from Chongqing as the eponymous protagonist. Made in 1943, the film is wartime propaganda, and Wong donated both her salary and her costumes from the film to the American war effort. Her character is basically Victor Laszlo from Casablanca, but as a resistance leader in wartime China. 
In the role as Quan Mei, she wore her own gorgeous clothes, a remarkable instance of blurring the identity of star and character. Especially given all the times she had died on screen, it's satisfying to see her get a speech declaring that it doesn't matter if the villains kill her. Also, it's really nice to see a plummy part like that of Quan Mei going to a woman in her late 30s. She comforts small children, kills an odious man, is romantically adored by several others, orders lots of people around, and is generally fabulous as a leader of the Chinese resistance to occupation. At one point, the Japanese general, very drunk, asks her, why do you remind me of the Great Wall of China? Regarding him with open amusement and carefully concealed contempt, she says, Perhaps I am as aged looking as the Great Wall of China, leaving him to squirm his way out of that really awkward line. It's delightful. But it also exemplifies the kind of thing that was often said to and about Anime Wong by journalists, rather than to a film protagonist by the evil baddie. Throughout her career, Wong crafted her own image carefully. In public and on the silver screen, she is always exquisitely dressed. And despite the limitations on the parts she was offered, Anime Wong played a wide range of characters and played them well. But reporters tended to claim that secretly, despite her fashionable modernity, she must harbor the ancient soul of China. She must spiritually wear her hair long instead of bobbed, silk robes instead of flapper dresses. Despite all this, Anime Wong kept working. Despite discouragement and despite ill health, she made the transition from the big to the small screen with more success than many Hollywood stars of her generation, taking roles on The Barbara Stanwyck Show, among others, before her untimely death. Perhaps the most tantalizing of her roles is one that is now lost, the gallery of Madame Liu Tsong. Commissioned in the early 1950s, this would have been a detective show starring Wong as a lady detective with her own name, once again blurring the lines between star and character, performer and performance. If the show, scrapped when its network folded, had come to fruition, we could have had a detective drama contemporary with Dragnet, starring the film industry's first Chinese-American megastar. Like a number of roles that Wong was denied, it's a tantalizing might have been. Narratives of her career sometimes split in two directions, either a tale of talent ignored due to racism in Hollywood and beyond, or of talent triumphant despite that. What I find most impressive in Anime Wong's life and career is her remarkable integrity, her willingness to advocate for herself and to fight for what she deserved, and her remarkable intelligence, with which she crafted both a cohesive star image and an international career. This and all of our footnoting history episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. And as a seasonal announcement, this summer we're doing our first ever Q&A episode. You can submit your questions via our website, footnotinghistory.com forward slash Q&A, now through May 31st. Until next time, remember, the best stories are in the footnotes. <laughs>